Last weekend, two of the biggest science stories of the century were unfolding. One, of course, was our ongoing fight against the novel coronavirus. The other was the launch of humans into space from American soil. The first time that's happened in nearly nine years, and the collaboration between NASA and SpaceX that made that happen. I've been a science journalist for a decade. Watching a rocket launch is like my Super Bowl. But to be perfectly honest, last weekend neither one of those stories was even on my radar. Like many of you, I had turned my attention to the protests that arose in response to police killing George Floyd in Minneapolis. This is a data-driven podcast about the coronavirus, not a general news show. But coronavirus doesn't exist in a world without race. While anyone can get COVID. It predominantly affects people of color for a whole host of reasons that researchers link to systemic inequalities. According to the COVID Tracking Project, Black people are dying of COVID at a rate nearly two times higher than their population share. So today, we're going to hear from Black healthcare workers on the front lines of our COVID response about the emotional burden of everything that's happened in the last few months. Then, to close the show with some good news, we'll look at how one hotel in Minneapolis is providing shelter for homeless people who've been struggling since the pandemic began. I'm Anna Rothschild, and this is Podcast 19 from 5:38. It may sound a little ironic, but they're working with patients with respiratory issues and respiratory problems. Patients that need to be on the ventilator, and what was it, just about three weeks ago, up in New York, they were saying they were running out of ventilators. They didn't have enough of ventilators. Physicians were being put in the position to make decisions of who would go on the ventilators and who would not go on the ventilator. And then you have to have this image now, forever, imprinted in your mind of someone else with their knee choking the breath out of a person, and Two more individuals on the back of that person, and they can't breathe. That was Dr. Martha Dawson, a professor of nursing at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and the president of the National Black Nurses Association. You'll hear more from her later in the show. Over the past week, we spoke with Black healthcare workers about what they're feeling as they navigate two national crises. The pandemic and police violence against Black Americans. To put our conversation in context, we first spoke with Dr. Adia Harvey Wingfield, a sociologist at Washington University in St. Louis, who studies the impacts of race, gender, and class on processes at work, and wrote a book called Flatlining: Race, Work, and Healthcare in the New Economy. One thing I learned from my research is that for many Black healthcare workers, they're often motivated to go to the communities where there is most need, particularly the most need for Black communities who have historically been underserved and are often underinsured, and in many cases have multiple pre-existing conditions. We know that those are the communities that are being hit the hardest by the coronavirus. So these workers are just quite frankly more likely to be exposed to the virus more frequently and more often. But I also think that some of the consequences of this will be that there will be increased mental health stresses and tolls on Black workers. And to be fair, this is certainly creating a mental health crisis. I think for 
many, if not all of us. But I think it's important to be attuned to how this crisis will have particular implications for black healthcare workers who are likely to see the communities that they went into healthcare to try to help and assist being decimated and adversely affected by this crisis. Of course, these disparities existed even before the pandemic, but the coronavirus has laid them bare. Here's Dr. Darian Sutton Ramsey, an emergency medicine physician in New York City. The disparities with patient outcomes, I think that my white colleagues were aware, but it's not easily visible if you don't feel connected to it. If you don't see your mother, your father, your grandmother at risk, then it's not something that is at the front of your mind. And so I can't blame people for not seeing something that they can't feel or be attached to. And I found that this is an issue for black healthcare workers under the best of times, that part of the challenge with the work that they do is that they're likely to see people who remind them of themselves or their family members or their friends facing severe crises in care, but also in many cases being stereotyped and prejudged by people who were their colleagues and their coworkers. And that's when we're not facing a pandemic. So it's not hard to imagine how that's being multiplied and exacerbated in the current times. My concern is that without measures in place to address the specific toll that this crisis is taking and probably will continue to take on black healthcare workers, we may, quite frankly, see a situation where these workers are more likely to be among those healthcare workers who are killed by the virus, which obviously presents a terrible loss of life in and of itself. But we also may see that the mental health needs uh, that these communities are facing aren't going addressed by the organizations where they are employed. That's an area where, to my knowledge, I haven't seen a lot of institutional resources and support actually being marshaled. One of the things that I talk about in the research is that one of the findings that comes out of the study is that I learned that many black healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, technicians, actually did a lot of work themselves to try to change the organizations where they worked. And this could take the form of establishing mentoring programs. It could take the form of establishing initiatives to address racial health disparities that were present. It could take the form of being a change agent for, for patients. There is a wealth of research showing that black patients are often not believed when they go to the hospital, in particular about their level of pain. And there's also some research indicating that black patients have better outcomes when they're treated by a healthcare worker of the same race. So unfortunately, COVID is becoming more normal for me to treat. I think, number one, when I speak to my medical students and my residents, I have them acknowledge that the patient is a person of color. It's important to acknowledge that because you have to understand that you have to identify risk factors when you're trying to develop a, a plan for a patient. And if you don't acknowledge an obvious risk factor and you ignore it like we've been doing, you're going to lead to disparities and bad outcomes. Many Black physicians and nurses end up leading efforts to make healthcare more equitable, both in terms of patient care and general diversity training in their workplaces. Here's Dr. Nancy Anoru, an internal medicine resident physician at UMass Memorial Medical Center in the greater Boston area. There's something uh, they call the minority tax, and it essentially talks about um, for people, uh, underrepresented minorities, they end up having to bear the burden of, you know, fighting for racial equality, you know, really pointing out discrimination and end up sort of being taxed uh, for being a minority in excess of sort of the challenges that you already have to face. Um, certainly, you know, that is still the case, um, you know, and a lot of the things that I feel sort of um, responsible for or I feel like I have a duty to do is, you know, making sure that there are resources in place for, you know, other 
doctors of color, um, you know, sort of sitting on a lot of the committees that work for equal opportunity and, you know, try to identify places within the institution where we might have inadvertent discrimination or sort of systemic barriers that will affect um, doctors of color or medical students of color more. Um, And that certainly is not part of the job description, but, you know, as a woman of color and as of a doctor, um, it's something that ends up feeling very important, feeling very necessary. As a black physician, I'm the only black physician within my faculty group. And so as a black physician, you are often tasked to lead diversity and lead initiatives. When you're tasked to lead those things, of course, that takes away from your time. um, And that takes away from all of your effort and your mental strength. And then you're also tasked to work as a physician and then also live in the strife and the struggle of an everyday person of color. When organizations purport to have a goal of creating more racial diversity, but don't necessarily provide the resources, the support, and the uh, incentives towards doing so, but instead rely on black professionals in their employ, I refer to that as racial outsourcing. That work of actually doing the difficult labor of creating more racial diversity for communities of color becomes essentially outsourced to black professional workers. I also talk about the equity work, which I refer to as, again, the actual labor of having to make these changes. And that's what I saw a lot of black professionals doing in the healthcare system, of doing the equity work, of thinking about how to make these spaces ones that were more palatable and welcoming to communities of color, whether those are patients or other potential healthcare workers who might be interested in going into this line of work. For Dr. Sutton Ramsey, it took the killing of George Floyd and our national conversation about racism for him to realize the emotional toll of this equity work. It, it, it only honestly it wasn't until recently that I realized the realized the weight of, of that position was on my mental health. And um, I've written about this and it was in discussions with my twin brother, who's also a physician, that helped me to realize that it was a place that I did not need to um put my effort in. And I think for me, when we talk about things like do the work, these are really great hashtags, but people may not understand what we mean behind them. And by that, I mean the the disparity and diversity training that occurs on an everyday basis, the bias training that occurs, you can't expect those who are suffering from the effects of bias, disparity, and racism to do also the work in educating those who don't experience it. Because in effect, you're putting extra weight on that person who is already suffering from what you're discussing. And so it took me, even as a person of color that is experiencing it, this to realize that. Here's Dr. Wingfield. For workers in the medical profession, on top of these issues facing coronavirus, for black healthcare professionals, there's also this additional layer of the fact that uh, we still are dealing with the trauma and the mental pain of continued ongoing cases of uh, state violence and police brutality. It's important today when we think about how work is structured and some of the conversations that we've started to have about work-life balance and bringing your whole self to work, that in an increasingly racially diverse society, bringing your whole self to work means that more of your workers are going to be workers of color and that situations that are happening like these don't stop once you step into the workplace. You don't leave that behind because you can't leave that behind. These are still things that people are bringing to work with them. And I think it's useful for organizations to think about 
what that means and how if organizations want to be responsive to their employees, what that means in terms of changing how they are structured so that they are attuned to the issues and challenges that black employees have to bring to work and how organizations can take steps to try to uh, mediate or address those externally. Here's Dr. Noru again. You know, I think that before uh, Ahmaud Arbery happened and before George Floyd happened, I think that all physicians are carrying this huge burden of feeling like they are the gatekeepers and the defenders right now of our nation from this virus. And that's a big burden to carry. You know, and I think one thing that's sort of very interesting is so many different organizations, Starbucks and Verizon and all these different organizations were making these efforts to say, you know, thank you to our healthcare heroes and, you know, we appreciate you. And man, it makes that, that weight feel so much heavier because you feel like so many people are watching you and depending on the work that you do. And then, you know, having to sort of carry that burden and then have another burden put on by, you know, this racial injustice war that's brewing amidst a pandemic. And it ends up just, you know, being a lot to take to work with you every day. And a lot of times you don't really feel like you have the the freedom to say what you feel, because when people don't look like you, you don't know who you can talk to or say something to that will understand or relate. I asked Dr. Dawson, the president of the National Black Nurses Association, who you heard from earlier in the show, about the mental health toll the pandemic and police killings have taken on black nurses. I see it almost as being almost like our veterans that fought in the Vietnam War. The reason I compare it to the Vietnam War is those soldiers was over there fighting because our country sent them to fight that many of them suffered the pain of not being appreciated, not celebrated once they came back to this country. So not only did they have the stress of what they had observed and seen in the war, then they had the additional stress of not being appreciated by their countrymen. So think about the question you just asked me about African-American nurses being on the front line. What made me some of the behavior health issues? And when you connect this pandemic to the fact that they're still living in a society where their sons and daughters are at risk every day, they will have post-traumatic stress. Dr. Sutton Ramsey recently wrote an essay that he posted on social media about how the killing of George Floyd has made an impact on his personal and professional life. He'd been invited to participate in a panel discussion about the coronavirus, but had also been following the news from Minneapolis all day. One of the panelists brought up a COVID paper that he'd missed, which was rare since he had alerts set up to flag any new publications on the subject. And I realized that this entire time spent when I could have been studying the science that I was loved to teach, I could have, instead I've been spending learning simply how to survive, how to avoid being murdered, how to avoid being hunted, um, and how to avoid being another name on the list that we're seeing every day that we all unfortunately are becoming desensitized to. And I understood that although I get up every day and try my best to save lives of the citizens in this country, there are many people in this country that don't value mine. Here's Dr. Wingfield. These aren't really new issues. These issues of disparities and inequities in healthcare, these issues that we're talking about with the protests of police and state violence that goes unaccounted, these aren't new things that just started today or yesterday or this year or even this 
millennia. These are repeated issues, which is part of why it's so frustrating that people uh, are still protesting and still dealing with them. So I think it's important for, if we're talking about healthcare issues, to put these in the context of things that have been on, ongoing for a long time and have deep roots in the systemic inequalities that are present in our society. I think racism is pervasive in every level of society, and it comes into healthcare. Um, every part of the healthcare system, every part of the structure is afflicted by racism. And I think now we're realizing that is true. Um, and it, although it might have been in the shadows, we are shining light on it. And that's really, really important and helpful. I think we're going to come out of the pandemic. I still have my concerns about whether this country will ever take the racism that exists. Will we ever take it serious enough to say that if we don't correct it, we're going to be just like some of the other great societies in the history book? We are going to be history. Many thanks to Drs. Wingfield, Sutton Ramsey, Anoru, and Dawson. If you go to this episode's page on 538.com, you'll find a link to Dr. Sutton Ramsey's article titled What They Call Me, and a link to Dr. Wingfield's book. We try to end this podcast every week with a little bit of good news. Not gonna lie, this week, good news was a little hard to find. But one story did stand out. It's a story about a community coming together to help its homeless neighbors. First, a little background. In January, the Washington Post reported that over 550,000 Americans are homeless on a given night. And around 1.4 million Americans will spend a night in a homeless shelter in a typical year. And the surge in unemployment due to the pandemic may be raising those numbers even higher. One report out of Columbia University estimated that the pandemic could lead to a 40 to 45 percent increase in homelessness by the end of this year. However, shelters are crowded places, making it easy for the virus to spread. In a preprint of a paper posted back in April, researchers reported testing homeless people in one large shelter in Boston. Of the 408 people tested, 147 were positive for COVID-19. Consequently, some homeless shelters have limited the number of people they house each night to reduce crowding, and many homeless people have been forced to the streets. During the pandemic, the CDC has discouraged cities from breaking up outdoor encampments, since it makes it harder for service providers to find people and can actually spread disease further. But when the protests against the police killing of George Floyd started in Minneapolis, the Metropolitan Council broke up an encampment located close to a police station that protesters burned. In response, a group of community volunteers worked with the owners of a local Sheraton to house the homeless people. Volunteers are now operating the hotel, cooking, cleaning, and providing medical services. Here's Rosemary Finster, who's one of those volunteers. Um, this is a space where people were able to walk over. People were trickling in all night. Um, people had been shot at by the police with less lethal rounds. 
people have been shot at with live ammunition and coming in. People have been through some terrifying, terrifying experiences. This is not the only hotel in the country now housing homeless people. But similar efforts are usually sponsored by local governments, not community volunteers. This strategy has been an important measure to keep people safe during the pandemic, giving vulnerable people a bed in an uncrowded environment. After all, how can you shelter in place if you don't have a place to shelter? Many thanks to Max Nesterak of the Minnesota Reformer for letting us use his clip of Rosemary Finster. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Jake Arlo. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer. Okay, until next week, be good to each other. <laughs>